Colossians, or Colossians. Correction. Thinking of you, Aaron. Titus chapter 3. Let's try that. Titus chapter number 3. And let's stand. We're going to begin in verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter, which is, of course, the end of the book. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me to Nicopolis, for I have determined there to winter. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. And let ours also learn to maintain good works for necessary uses, that they may be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee. Greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. And let's pray. Father, as we come to the last of the book of Titus, I pray for us again that we would understand Paul's message to the churches, that we would be zealous and diligent to apply ourselves to the instruction, so that we would be a church that would be pleasing to you in the way we conduct ourselves. Help us then. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, as he's closing this brief letter to Titus, who is pastoring the church in Crete, Paul's emphasis is upon good works as a product of our salvation. And by good works, of course, Paul is concerned that we do things that we are commanded to do, that we do those things that God has decreed for us to do. And I don't think that any of us would think like this, but we don't get to invent our rendition of good works, do them, and then expect God to be pleased with them. Good works are works that are works in accordance with His Word. Good works are, as much as possible, being obedient to civil governments. Because certainly being under God's authority does not remove us from other human authority. Good works are in line with our gender. And of course, I know that I'm preaching to the choir, but there are only two, boys and girls. And they do different good works because God has different things for them in this world. 
And they do good works pertaining to their station and status in life. There are works for those that are married and works for those that are not married. There are those that work in the home and there are works for those who do not work in the home. There are works for those who are masters and those who are slaves. And God speaks at various places in the Bible to all of those people telling them how to think about where they are and what to do in those positions. And those then would really be the embodiment of good works. We cut off last night at the end of verse number 8, which is not really the end of Paul's thought, but was a good place to stop. These things are good and profitable unto men, Titus 3.8. And then in verse number 9 and down through the end, Paul turns his attention in a little bit different direction. And he gives to us, through Titus, three imperatives. Three things that we are to be careful about, that we are to give attendance to. Now there is something that is directed specifically to Titus that we can read, but we do not need to obey. But there are three imperatives in this last part of the text, verses 9 through 15 that are commands to us that are in consistence with doing good works. The first is found in verse number 9. But avoid foolish questions. Avoid foolish questions, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. So the first imperative is this. We are to avoid fruitless debates. Debates that prove nothing. The imperative in the text is avoid. To turn away from them. The idea, I think, the implied in the verb is the idea of being on the lookout for them. And then avoiding them before you're in the middle of them the way that a careful driver might look down the road and see the red flashing and blue flashing lights and decide that rather than wait to get upon the traffic jam to get around it early enough, avoid. And then Paul goes through a list of things that we are to avoid in verse number 9. Foolish questions, literally moronic questions. Questions of questionable ethical value. Genealogies. Contentions and strivings about the law. All of these things are repeated in one time or another in all three of the pastorals. This is something that Paul is very concerned about, or really that God is very concerned about, not happen in his churches. 1 Timothy 1.4, Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. 1 Timothy 6.2, They that have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort, if any man teach otherwise, 
and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and evil surmisings. That's 1 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 23. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. The imperative is to avoid fruitless debates. To stay away from topics that go nowhere. Church is a place for sound doctrine. It is a place for edifying conversation. It is a place to talk sincerely and intelligently about the Bible. But it is not the place to argue and fight and devote much time to things that cannot be proven cannot be established, and would change nothing if they did. We are not here to advance unbiblical positions, no matter how much we might love them. We are not here to turn people back to the practice of the Old Testament law, no matter how appealing it may sound. And we all struggle, and I would include you in that, and I'm not insulting anybody, but from the best of the commentators to the newest of believers, we all struggle to understand exactly what Paul's concern with genealogies is. Are we finding some authority given to some person because they can trace their lineage to somebody in the place? I've had a number of edifying conversations today about the genealogies. We've read some of the genealogies in Sunday school things that you didn't think of or that you didn't always realize were there or the way that God informs us of things in the genealogies. There are long genealogies. Somebody has asked me, I'm just talking now for a minute, somebody asked me if I have preached through all the books in the Bible and I I have not preached systematically through the Psalms and I have not preached systematically through First and Second Chronicles. And somebody said, well, you really need to preach through Chronicles. And I would like to preach through Chronicles. I'm not exactly sure what to do with nine chapters of genealogies. Some of you that may have been here on a Christmas Sunday a number of years ago might recall that for that morning's reading, we read five chapters of 1 Chronicles, the genealogies. Paul is not making the point that genealogies are a waste of time But Paul is aware of some way in which the genealogies are being misused. And I would suspect that in general, his concern is because we are redirecting our focus to the people rather than to the Lord. But again, I do not know. And certainly because we have Romans 14, Paul would never allow us to argue things from the law as biblical mandates binding upon everybody. So there are some topics, folks, that are to be avoided. Topics that cause dissent, that cause controversy, that cause people to fight. And there's an explanation given. Paul doesn't just tell us not to do that. right? And in the explanation, we have further benefit. Right? Here's a question that we can pose. If somebody wants to back us into a corner and talk about their pet grievance or their favorite genealogy, all right, here is the criteria. 
Why would we avoid these things? Verse number 9, because they are unprofitable and vain. They are unprofitable. You gain nothing from them. You gain nothing from them. And they are vain. They accomplish nothing. And remember, folks, that we want to frame all of this, right? When we talk about this, we're thinking about it in light of what is really driving Paul, which is that Christians are to be preoccupied with good works. And if we devote ourselves to fruitless discussions that go nowhere, we're not doing anything. Just talking about possibilities and what if this and what if that. So, there is the first imperative, verse number 9. We are to avoid certain topics. Secondly, we are to avoid certain people. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. The imperative is the word reject in verse number 10. The first imperative is in verse number 9, avoid. The second imperative is verse number 10, reject. But what does it mean to reject them? How are we supposed to reject these people? Well, let me just give to you And I'm not going to have you turn to all of them. I'm going to work through them fairly quickly, but you can make a note or look at them if you want. And how the word that is found here is used elsewhere in the Bible. In Luke 14, 18, it is translated with this expression, make excuse. They all with one consent began to make excuse. They rejected in Acts 25.11, it is translated with the word refuse. Paul said if he was guilty, he refused not to die. In Hebrews 12.19, it is translated with the word entreated. And in Hebrews 12.25, it is translated with the word refused. In other words, the idea, folks, is to use words to refuse to get into the debate about other words. So a man that is a heretic in this case is not to be lynched. He is not even to be disciplined out of membership. He is simply to be rejected. And I would remind us what we know, but is easy to forget, and that is a genuine heretic is not simply somebody who is teaching wrong doctrine. A genuine heretic is somebody who is being divisive about what they teach. That is where heresy is. We associate it with false doctrine because false doctrine is very divisive. But there are other ways to be divisive in a church, and I think Paul has referred to them in verse number 9. In other words, folks, it's one thing to say avoid these topics, But these topics always come to us through a person. Somebody has written a book. Somebody has had a conversation. Somebody has argued something in a podcast. Somebody has written a letter. Avoid the subject 
And there are certain people to avoid. And here's the way that it is supposed to function. Paul goes on once again to elaborate. He doesn't just say reject him. He says, here's what to do. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. So here they come with their divisive position. And the first thing that happens is that he is informed that it is a divisive position. And since we are instructed to avoid topics that go nowhere and profit no one and accomplish nothing, we're just not going to talk about it. If he persists, we go through the process again. He is admonished, he is warned, he is corrected. We do not do that here. We do not have these kinds of divisive fights about these kinds of unprofitable things. And then the third time, he is rejected. A clear line is drawn. I am not conversing with you. I'm not having this conversation anymore. We'll take it further if necessary. But the line is drawn. And I would suggest to you folks that verse number 11 is written there for our consolation. Right? Who wants to do this? Who wants to, who wants to be the guy that says, look, You're just causing trouble with this. You're just being divisive. You're trying to drive a wedge where no wedge needs to exist. You're trying to embrace a position that you cannot biblically defend. And so you have this consolation, folks, right? Because when we do those kinds of things, right, they are usually accompanied by a tremendous amount of guilt, Have we done something that is wrong? Have we become the problem? Have we been the one that is divisive? Have we not been gracious? Have we not been long-suffering enough? Well, know this. Know this, verse number 11. Knowing that he that is such is subverted. Twisted is the idea. They are twisted. And they are sinning. And they are bringing this on themselves. So here's our consolation, right? Our instruction is, if it gets to that point, reject them. And here's our consolation. They've done it to themselves. They've brought it on themselves. It's not you, unless you're the one being divisive. It's not me, unless I'm the one being divisive. It's the one being divisive. God's instruction is for everybody. They're not supposed to do these things. They are not to come to church prepared to argue for their genealogies and their moronic questions to be contentious and controversial. So there's the second imperative. The first imperative is to avoid certain subjects. The second imperative is to reject certain people. And the third imperative, and I'm going to bring verses 12 through 15 into all this third point, is learn to do good works. The imperative is in verse number 14. Let ours also learn. Let ours also learn. 
There's the third command. Avoid, reject, learn. Verses 12 through 13 are very helpful, but they are very personal in nature. They, they're not a command for us, but they do set forth some principles for us. <clears throat> Verse number 12, when I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus. And we want to remember that Titus is in Crete. Paul has sent him to Crete. Paul has actually left him in Crete. Paul left, left Titus in Crete so that, Paul, that Titus would do ministerial work there in Crete. And one of his big tasks is to remind the people in the churches that God saved them so that they would do good works. But I'm going to send a replacement. It will either be Artemis or Tychicus. And when they come to you, then you come to me. And there are, of course, imperatives in that. Paul's giving commands. He's he's not being nasty, but he's writing instructions to Titus as to what he wants him to do. So when they get there, whether it be Artemis or Tychicus, here's the next imperative, if you're tracking the imperative verbs there, be diligent. The idea there is to make a straight path, make a beeline. Don't waste any time. When those guys show up, you get over here as fast as you can to Nicopolis. Because that's where I will be. I'm going to spend the winter in Nicopolis. And provide for, and the idea here is to pay the way. And I think you'll see that in the context quite easily. Bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently that nothing be wanting unto them. And there is that little biblical euphemism on their journey. We see it several times in the Bible. Some rendition of it brought on their way. Acts 15.3, Romans 1.24, 1 Corinthians 16.6, 1 Corinthians 16.11, 2 Corinthians 1.16. And the idea is to cover their expenses. And I said, yeah, I think that you'll see it from the context because of the way Paul ends the sentence. Bring Zenos and the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently that nothing be wanting unto them. Take care of all they need so that, so that they're not lacking anything. Don't lay it upon them. Take it unto yourself. And I think that, that what Paul is implying here is that the church should be doing this, not Titus out of his own pocket, but that the church should be paying for this journey. So there is, in, in those two verses, the personal dimension in the conclusion. And then the final imperative for us. Let ours also learn. Let ours, the people who belong to the Lord, us. Let those who are ours Learn to maintain good works for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. That they be not unfruitful. So let our people, the final imperative, let our people learn to do good works. The word maintain is the idea of presiding. 
or superintending. Let them <clears throat> see to it that good works are being done. Let ours also learn to maintain good works. And these are good works for necessary uses. These are not mindless activities, folks, or mindless exercises. Good works for the Christian are not the old military equivalent of digging a hole and then filling it back in so that you have something to do today. Good works have a very definite purpose. They are indispensable. Let us learn to do good works because they are indispensable. Certainly, folks, it is true that God did not save us just so that we could sit around and hope to someday be in heaven, but so they would live as believers. And this is so, again, there is an explanation given, right? There is instruction and explanation. Avoid these things. Why? But they don't do anything. Right? They're, they're unproductive. And avoid these people. Why? Because all they want to do is argue about things that are unproductive. And they're the ones that are twisted. And you're, you know, folks, you've met people like this. That, right, there are people who are having very, right, disagree. I don't mean ugly disagreements. I mean, see this position A, see the same position B, have sincere, heartfelt conversations about what the Scriptures are really teaching and are really working to understand the mind of the other person. Scripture's fine. But we've all met people that we know nothing that anybody says is ever going to change them. Not that the Lord would never change them, but they've, they've got their view and they're a one-trick pony and that's what they want to argue. And just just stay away from those kind of people. But here is the explanation for good works so that you're not unfruitful. So that you're not unfruitful. What a, what a sad thing it would be for somebody to live out their entire life as a Christian and have no fruit. Have nothing that they have produced. And I don't mean produced in numerical quantity. that they be not unfruitful. The fruit of God's people is good works, and good works are things that he commands us to do. And this, again, is the purpose, so that they would be not unfruitful. God does not want you to be unfruitful. God wants us, folks. God wants us to be productive believers. And again, I'm not talking about productive in some kind of a numerical sense, how many church services I attend, how many pages of the Bible I read, how many souls I've won, how many people I've seen baptized. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or old, whether you're married or single, whether you are an employee or an owner, whether you are a laborer or a homemaker, God has work for you to do in that framework. Good work. 
work that is necessary, work that is profitable, work that will produce God's approval. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to avoid being unnecessarily divisive. And I pray that you would deliver us from pet doctrines and petty agendas. And I pray that you would teach us that our lives should be presiding over good works that are profitable to you. And so please accomplish this in us to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.